doing all right? Well, we are continuing in our journey through the book of Ephesians, and we are in our second to last week. So next week we'll bring the book of Ephesians to a close as we look at the armor of God from chapter 6 and looking really forward to getting into that text with you. But if I've not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Pastor Adrian Pina. I have the opportunity to serve here at Firewall as the interim pastor. And uh, I'd love to be able to shake your hand and be able to greet you after service if we haven't had a chance to meet. And I want to thank all of you who are joining us online. Uh, we are so glad that you're with us. So, just a reminder of kind of the structure of the book of Ephesians and kind of where we've been. So remember the book of Ephesians divides into two really nice sections. Chapters 1 through 3 kind of cover the theological as Paul is unpacking doctrine. Uh, and then basically chapters 4 through 6, which we find ourselves in now, kind of work out what this doctrine then looks like within the context and the life of the local church. Because remember, he's writing to a church, and a lot of the language that he used is framed around we and us being one and this idea of unity. And so a lot of this language is framed out within how it works in the context of the local church. And today we're going to see that expression of how we do this thing called the Christian life in the context of the Christian home. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. So last week we looked at uh, what it meant to put off the old self with its old desires, its old ways, its old ways of thinking. And it's like putting it off like putting off an old shirt and leaving it in the closet, so to speak, for uh, proverbially speaking, in the closet of sin. And putting on the new self, putting on this new identity that we have in Christ. Being able to walk in spiritual victory and to walk in the newness of life that we have in Jesus. And last week... Our one truth statement was out with the old self and in with the new self. Uh, I don't know about you, but I like to be able to hopefully day by day as I grow in Christ, put on the new self more than I put on the old self. Amen? Right? We don't want to put on the old self just like we don't want to put on dirty clothes when we get out the shower, like we talked about last week, okay? So today we're going to jump ahead by like 20 verses in chapter 5, and that is intentional because the end of chapter 4 where Paul's talking about putting off the old self, putting on the new self, the beginning part of chapter 5 is a further amplification and application of that truth. So we're not going to reiterate some of those things, but I do want to bring to your attention verses 1 and 2 because I want this to be in the back of your mind, Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. As we talk today, these verses need to frame some of the things that we're talking about. About. So it starts off by saying, therefore, and as the late Howard Hendricks always used to say, when you see therefore, you need to know what it's there for, okay? And so in this way, therefore is a connecting word. You notice, you do know that in the original language, there's no such thing as chapter and verse, right? That's a man-made construction in your Bible, chapter and verse. So Paul is continuing on his argument by putting the word therefore, we're linking it to what has come, this idea of putting off the old self, putting on the new self. And he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Key phrase that's going to come up again. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So if you read the rest of verses 1 through basically 20, after he frames it with these first two verses, he's then going to talk about like attitudes and actions that we are to do that represent us being imitators of God that love Christ as we grow up into him, as it kind of is like this idea of growing into Christ as we talked about last week. 
So today, we're going to jump ahead and we're going to start in verse 22, and we are going to talk about what has been a hotbed topic of discussion within the church and has always been ever since I believe that these words were probably even penned, but it has been really in the last like 50, 60 years kind of a, a very big topic within the church. What does it mean when Paul talks about submission in the context of the Christian home? Alright, so we're going to look at this thing of submission. And I promise you, those of you who are here today who are single, because he is addressing husbands and wives, I promise you we're going to have some application for you as well. And you'll see what I mean when we get there, alright. So we're going to hit a very interesting and touchy subject. And I hope we'll do justice as we work through the text. Y'all ready to get through some hard stuff today And as we work through the text? Okay, well let's start with this. I want to show you a picture. So go ahead and pop that picture up on the screen for me. And so uh, this is a freebie to you all, by the way. If you are here and you are married, do not stop dating your spouse. All of y'all should have said amen to that one, all right, that those of you are married. If not, that means you might be seeing Jen and I, okay? And then we will reiterate this to you, okay? So it is important, keep dating your spouse, okay? So Jen and I, even in the midst of the chaos of life, we try to make it a priority to do a date night every Friday or at least mo most Fridays of the month, and we try to keep that. And so here's a picture from one of our latest date nights, and uh, this actually happens to go into my opening illustration, so I'm not showing you this just for date night, but it is free, and you get that as well, okay? But uh, on this date night a couple weeks ago, we went to see the Vienna Light Orchestra at the Irvin Arts Center, and they were performing music from The Greatest Showman. Now, I love that soundtrack, I love that movie, and so it was just a great, great time that we had, and we got to see this orchestra performed by Candlelight. I mean, it was, it was, as, it was as awesome as I wanted it to be when I planned the date. It was really a magical date night. Now that being said, the man in the back that you can see kind of barely uh, playing the keyboard, if you actually were able to see him dressed up, he's got the whole suit garb on, he's the conductor, okay? And it's important because he conducted a few of the numbers and I wanted to show you this and I want to point him out to make a point. There was a study done a number of years ago about how members of various sections of a major symphony orchestra perceived each other. This is interesting. The percussionists were view as, viewed as insensitive, unintelligent, hard of hearing, yet fun-loving. Okay? You take that description with what you want. Don't be thinking of our worship team members. I see some of y'all doing that. No. The worship team's probably thinking of that themselves. The, uh, the orchestra members overwhelmingly chose loud as the primary objective to describe the brass players. The woodwind players seem to be held in highest esteem, described as quiet, meticulous, though a bit egotistical. Interesting findings, to say the least. With such widely divergent personalities and perceptions, how could an orchestra ever come together and make such beautiful and wonderful music? The answer is simple. Please hear this. The answer is simple. Regardless of how those musicians view each other, they subordinate their feelings willingly and their biases to the leadership of the conductor. Under his guidance, they play beautiful music together. There is a mutual submission of every member of the orchestra under the guidance of the instructor. There is no instrument greater than others. They submit one to another. In turn, that results in beautiful music being made together. Here's my point and here's my one true statement. Is that out of reverence for Christ, there's to be mutual submission between husband and wife. Out of reverence to Christ, 
There's to be mutual submission between husband and wife. Christ is our conductor. All right, and as he is leading this thing and he is leading the way that he frames this thing we call the Christian home and the Christian church, we come under and we willfully submit and subordinate to him. And in doing so, we see that there is this mutual submission upon, amongst members within the church and within the Christian home. So out of reverence to Christ, there's to be some mutual submission between husband and wife. So if you have your Bible, you want to open up physically, electronically, we're going to find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 22, then we're actually going to go back to verse 21, but we're going to start at verse 22. So Paul is going to begin by giving a word to the wives. So let's look at the wives first in verse 22. One thing I noticed coming back to this passage this week is that he only talks to the wives in a few verses. He talks to the husbands a whole lot longer. So husbands who love to point to this passage in some ways that I think is a bad reading of the text, he talks to you a whole lot more than he talks to them. Just saying, all right? So verse 22, let's get into the text. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, here's what's interesting, is the word submit in verse 22 actually is not there in the original Greek. In the original Greek manuscripts and some of our most ancient manuscripts for this passage, there is no verb. Now, if you know anything about grammar and you are considering and this is running on and it's a continuing idea, where do you get the verb then? You get the verb from what precedes. So in Greek, if you don't see a verb, you get the verb from what precedes and comes before. We find the verb in verse 21. Paul does this actually quite a bit in the original language. He, does, he likes run-on sentences, so sometimes you got to go hunting for the verb. All right, so in this case, the verb is found in verse 21, which is translated the same, but it has an interesting meaning. And what does verse 21 say? Because we have to see verse 22 then in context of what's being said in verse 21. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. So submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's make a connection here for what we've been looking at the last number of weeks. So if we go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 4, chapter 4, Paul lays out, remember at the end of chapter 2, their dividing wall of hostility has been, has been eliminated between Jew and Gentile. They are now one body. And there's all this conversation about oneness, right, and about unity. There's a unity between Jews and Gentiles. Then in chapter 4, at the very beginning, we get all this oneness kind of unifying kind of language. There is one God, one baptism, one spirit, all within the context of the church. Then he goes on to talk about how we used to reflect an old way of life that was the old self. Now as we put on the new self, now verse 1 of chapter 5, we are to be imitators of God, loving and acting like Christ, walking out in love. And he's talking about that in the context of community. And he's talking about that in the context of the church. So submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, he's talking about that within the context of the church. Verse 22 is really an application to the point he's making. He's giving you an illustration. So as he's saying, as we submit within the church to one another, this is how you do it in the home. 
in the context being obviously a Christian home. Wives then do this with your husbands, okay? This is really, really important. I'm not trying to parson. This is really important for the context of what's being said because what does the word submit mean, okay? In verse 21, the verb form of the word submit means to subject oneself, but it's important to note that it means to subject oneself voluntarily as an equal. Let me say that again. It means to submit oneself voluntarily as an equal in terms of value. So this becomes this application of this principle in verse 22 of submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ in verse 21. So submission here does not indicate inferiority. It doesn't involve losing one's identity. It doesn't involve becoming a non-person, becoming a doormat. Submission does not mean blind obedience or passivity. It is voluntary. It's not coerced. It is not a superior to an inferior. That's not what he's talking about, which is really, really important. And when you understand the cultural context into which Paul is speaking to, you're going to understand how revolutionary his words are. The Bible never says, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible never says that men are superior to women. I challenge you to find that in the text. Guess what? You're not going to. The Bible never says in any way that somehow you being of the male species myself means that I am superior to women, that women are inferior. But that was the understanding for a lot of time. That was the understanding even within Paul's cultural context, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Galatians 3.28 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Did you know that there was a time when, and this is even some of, even some of the early church, some of the early church fathers, our earliest writings, when they were trying to take the Bible, what they thought to be very literally, even held to some of these beliefs. Did you know that there was a time when people believed that women did not, were not created in the image of God? You can look throughout church history and there were people genuinely that believed that women were not created in the image of God. Or they believed that women received the image of God from deriving their origin from man and that they possessed somehow a diminished form of being in the image of God. Can you imagine that? It's like Crazy to think about that nowadays, but that was genuinely the case. In the first century, women were treated more like property than they were as humanity created in the image of God. Husbands had all the power. Husbands could go up to his wife and divorce his wife by giving her a certificate for whatever reason he wanted to. It didn't have to be a legitimate reason. He could literally lie about it if he wanted to. Lie about the reason and he could actually divorce her and she had no recourse. And she had no actual legal grounds to receive anything either. Back in the first century. So Paul is talking into this context. This is the cultural context he's speaking into. He's speaking into a vacuum. He's speaking into a place where everybody understood where men were the ones who had all the power. And here he is now basically trying to bring this context and framing it and he's relating it to the way Christ relates to the church to be able to, to show a completely different paradigm, all right? In the Genesis account, it tells us that God created them male and female, he created them. So the image of God is reflected both in male and female, 100%. Ladies, you are created in the image of God. 
You are 100% created in the image of God. You do not possess the diminished form of the image of God. You do not lack the image of God. You are created in his image and his likeness. Amen. So the image of God is reflected both in male and female. So this speaks of our value. It speaks of our worth in God's eyes. It means that there's no distinction in personal value, gifts, abilities, or intellect. Women are not somehow inferior in God's economy. Notice that in verse 22. What's the first word? What's the first word? It doesn't say women. It doesn't say, and it says to husbands, it doesn't say to men. It's not a blanket statement to say, women, you submit to men. Although I've heard it interpreted that way before. That's not what he's saying. He's saying wives. So if you are not part of the wife and husband equation of that, it ain't any of your business. <laughs> Sorry to be so frank about that. But wives, it's addressed to wives and to their own Husbands, not to men in general. And this is to be done unto the Lord. So the wife submits to her husband. It's a voluntary mutual submission, and she in turn in doing so is doing it as unto the Lord. Now it gets really tricky. Here's where this part gets funny. Because what is the interpretation of the word head in verse 23? There's been a lot of ink spilt about this, and like I said, probably over the last 50 or 60 years, this has been such a hotbed topic of what this actually means, because the word has two potential meanings in Greek, okay? And I am going to tell you right now that what I'm going to present to you, I'm going to tell you what both of them are, but I'm also going to present to you an interpretation. I'm going to say that right up front. Because there are equally valid, there are Christians on both sides of the spectrum that are going to interpret this word one of the two ways I'm going to present it to you, and they're both in the same, they're both in the camp of Christian. They're not outside of orthodoxy for them to interpret it the way that they interpret it. I believe that there's a certain interpretation that lends itself better to the overall context and to the spirit of what Paul is saying in this book and I think of the Old Testament, uh, of the New Testament in general, okay? So in verse 23, the word head is used in one of two ways in the Greek. The first way, which most people, th which a large number of people think about it in this way, is they think about it in terms of authority. When we say a person is, let me give you an example. We could say that Governor Greg Abbott is the head of state when it comes to the state of Texas. What I mean by that is I mean that he is the authority or he is the person who's the head honcho in charge. He has the authority over the state of Texas, whatever the case may be. And that's not a political statement, that's an example, okay? So, we understand the head as a person who is a person of authority. The other way it could be translated, which is the majority of the way that it's translated in antiquity, and I believe the right translation, is that you could translate it as source. Here's what I mean by that. In the New Testament, when we talk about source, it means that it describes something of origin, like the head of a river. So think about when a river when you have a body of water that goes from one body of water into another at its head, right, and then they come together and they create one body of water, right? So there, it may originate in one spot, but then it finds itself into this other body of water and there's a unity that's created as it's absorbed into that body, okay? So it becomes its source. Now track with me here, all right? 
As I said, this passage has been used by many people to affirm certain gender roles, but at worst it's been times a means of abuse, suggesting that wives are always to submit to their husbands, even in abusive situations, which is a very bad reading of the text. And it's a very bad indication on what you think about God, if you think that God permits abusiveness within the context of the marital relationship. All right? Here's the thing, is if you look at the end of verse 24, so go back to verse 24. The end of verse 24, listen to what it says. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now if you took that reading at face value, number one is you don't do that. Nobody does that. So if I was to tell my wife just right now, go ahead and shoot somebody, and is she just going to have to go ahead and obey me? That puts, the, that puts the actual passage in contradiction with itself because she's doing it as unto Christ, right? So last time I checked, what he says is much more important than what I say. So if Christ says we should not murder, then if I told my wife to go ahead and murder, it wouldn't be like she could go ahead and tell the judge, my husband told me so and I'm submitting to his authority. As exaggerant as that sounds, please understand what I'm saying. I'm trying to be tongue-in-cheek about this, but this is very serious because you can see how this language could be abusive. And you can see how people have manipulated this language in order to create a domineering kind of relationship when it's not what's intended. Paul is trying to bring this under the banner of Jesus, and you're going to see when he gets to husbands, he's going to tell you over and over again, love, 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 love. That's not loving. That's not loving. That doesn't reflect love. So nobody does this, and that's not a good reading of the text, to say that, okay, we submit ourselves in everything. So whatever I say goes, go jump off a bridge. That doesn't make sense, right? We understand this, but then why do we read the text in a way that is as if we're not reading it within its whole context, okay? So that would contradict literally what's affirmed as her submission unto the Lord. So why do we interpret this passage only through the lens of traditional gender roles when we miss the incredible thing that Paul is doing here? If you take the idea of head, meaning source, I think it better fits the context. And here's what we could say about this. In a sense, okay, in some sense, we could say that woman comes, that she is sourced in man. What I mean by that is in Genesis, She's taken from man, woman, right? She's taken from man. So she finds her origin in that way. We can say it that way. But when we talk about an image of a body of water, and I think that this image is what he's going to talk about when he talks about Christ as the head, and then he talks about the church as the body. We see those two groups coming together in a beautiful unity, flowing into one another, creating this unity between bodies of water. In that sense, even woman with man in the marital relationship create this beautiful unity together. This unity is illustrated by Christ who is the head of the church. We don't say that Christ is like a physical head, right? It's not like I could, you know, decapitate Christ and somehow his physical head. This is the head. Christ is the head. No, it's a metaphor, right? We all know that's a metaphor, a, a figure of speech. When we say that Christ is the head and the church is the body, that is symbolizing that there's a connectedness between those two. There's an interdependence in some ways between those two realities that Christ is, we could say definitely he would fit the bill that he is the authority of the church, but he's its source, right? There is no church apart from him being the source, right? So that translation also fits. He is the source. He's the origin. He's where it comes from. 
And so him being the source and then being flowing into the body, this interconnectedness is the same, I think, representation in a healthy marriage. In a healthy marriage, the head is the, the husband is the metaphorical head of the wife, and the wife is the metaphorical body, but they are unified under Christ in a relationship of beautiful mutual submission and love. Voluntary submission as equals to one another. Not in position of superior to inferior, not a position of greater to lesser, but a position of where it's mutual love and submission to each other as they do it unto the Lord. This is radical. What Paul is saying is radical to a first century audience who understood women as being property, who understood women as commodities that could be traded, who understood women that could just be discarded and then another one picked up. And yet he's telling you, no, I want you to view her as an equal, and I want you to treat her like you treated Christ. That's very different. That's very different in that sense. Let's get to husbands, verse 25. Verse 25. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What's the word you see repeated? Love, guess what, you're going to see it repeated much more. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The passage says nothing about husbands lead your wives in this way, or husbands, you know, you're the head of the home and you're supposed to orchestrate everything that goes on. But rather, the motivating force behind the husband's action is linked to the idea of love. That he's supposed to love his wife. And love his wife in a way that emulates the way in which Christ loved the church. So when Paul speaks to husbands, between the verses of 25 to 33, he mentions the word love six times. Love. Six times he's telling them, because that's supposed to frame the attitude and actions behind the husband. The important phrase, I believe, in this, in this section that I just read to you is when it talks about Christ, it says, and he gave himself up for her. Who did Christ give himself up for? He gave himself up for his church. And how does Christ then love his church? How does Christ then love his church? He demonstrates that love by his giving, right? And he demonstrates that love by the fact that he gave his life. It's a sacrificial kind of love. But let me say it this way. Christ lowered himself so he can elevate his bride. Let me say that again. Christ lowered himself so he could elevate his bride. When Jesus came in flesh, we call that the incarnation. And in the incarnation, he condescended from heaven into and took on this human earth suit the God-man, then to pay the price for our sins, but in doing so, he lowered himself to the point where he actually suffered at the hands of his own creation. But why did he do that? He did that so he, like when he told Philip that where I am, you may be, so that way they can be lifted. So that way the church can then be lifted to where he's at. So that way the church can then be lifted as part of the ministry of what he wanted them to continue to do. That's why he washes her with his word. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her because she's a beautiful bride to him. He's presenting her. He's elevating her. That's what he wants husbands to emulate. That type of self-sacrificing, sacrificial kind of love. 
Listen to verse 26 and 27 again, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. He presents her in beauty. He doesn't look at her and all her wrinkles and all her spots and all these crazy imperfections. What he says, this is my bride, she's beautiful, I'm presenting her. I want everyone to see her. Much like I hope that your spouse is the apple of your eye. Now when you look at her or when you look at husbands, when you look at her, you want her, you want to present her and say to everybody, and you say it with a smile, and you say it because you're so filled with love, and you say it because this is my wife, I want her to be known. She's not an afterthought. I want her to be known that she is, that I, that I love her, presenting her. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. There we go. Love, love, loves. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Now, regardless of what you think about, or, you know, sometimes I think, I'm like, man, I can't wait for this whole glorified body thing, especially as I start getting older. I'm like, I can't wait for this whole glorified body thing. Who knows, maybe I'll finally have a six-pack in heaven. Uh, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> but, you know, vanity, that's, all that stuff's not important. But here's the reality, is that regardless of what you think of your earth suit right now, to some degree, you love it. You love it because you take care of it. When your belly starts telling you it's time to eat, you feed it. You, you wash yourself. You clean up, you put clothes on, you do all those kind of things as basic care and necessity items for your body. You sleep, you go to the doctors, you hopefully get exercise, you have proper hygiene, all of those things. Even though our bodies, physically speaking, are imperfect, our taking care of them shows a level of love that one person has for themselves. Because we care enough to go get a haircut to do all those kind of things. So... He's making the connection, if you physically as a husband care that much about your body, and some of y'all, some of y'all husbands spend longer than your wife getting ready. Some of y'all really care about your body. That's okay. There ain't nothing wrong with that. Own it. That's okay. But here's the thing, is that if you care for yourself in that way, and we're concerned with the upkeep of our physical body and deem that to be important, what is even greater emphasis should be placed upon the upkeep of our marriage that is shown to the love that we have toward our wife? If I take a shower, if I do all that stuff, then Paul's saying, husbands, love your wife as your own bodies. That's kind of unique in the way he says that. And then the very next thing he talks about is the union that the two have, where the two become one flesh. Maybe there's some connection there. But if you love your own body, then if that's enough, he always links it back to Christ. And Christ does, do you believe that Christ loves his body? Y'all believe Christ loves his body? I believe that Christ loves the church. Christ loves his body. He loves him. He loves his body. He not only calls it his body, he calls it his bride. He loves his bride. And so if we love our physical bodies, then that should emulate somehow we care in our marital relationship. He takes another step further and says Christ cares for his body, so he doesn't hate his body. He loves her, his body, and he gave his life for her. So let me say it this way. A husband who truly loves his wife as his own body treats her as his equal. A husband who truly loves his wife as his own body 
treats her as his equal. Why? Because your body is one thing that you have. It's the totality of you. Your body consumes both your physical, your spiritual, your immaterial and material part of your being is in this one body. And if you're taking care of this one body, then and you're showing a way of taking care of it spiritually, physically, all that other stuff, then you are to think about your wife in that same context. That means I think about her just like I think about proper hygiene, eating right, doing all this stuff. Just like I fuel and feed the physical, the spiritual, the material, immaterial, so I think of in the same. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Why does he put that in there? This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. I love this connection. He just said, husbands, loves your wives as your body, but then he's bringing the imagery of the two becoming one flesh. How many of y'all, when you got married, did the whole unity candle thing? Anybody do the unity candle or the sand or whatever the case may be, right? What is that whole thing supposed to represent? So you have the two candles on the outside that represent the individuals, right? So then the individuals, you go together, you get the nice picture together, oh, this is nice. And then you go ahead and you put it into the one big candle in the middle, right? And then you, then you have the two that become one represented with the one big candle in the middle. It doesn't mean you lose your identity. It doesn't mean that you lose your personhood, but it does mean that you've created a new unit, and that unit is husband and wife. And that unit as husband and wife is amongst two individuals that come together as one marital unit under the guidance of the conductor, under Jesus, and under his banner, we represent then what Christ's marriage is the, is the clearest representation on earth of Christ's relationship to his body. That's what it's supposed to represent. That's why we are called his bride. So if we are supposed to represent that mystery, Christ in his church, in our physical, actual marital relationships, we also reflect the attitude of that reality. Christ is our source and origin. We are united to him. We are growing into him, as Paul said, even in Ephesians, as we talked about. And so as we are one with that one God, one spirit, this one body, we are part of that one body. As we are united to Christ, so we are united to our husband and wife as one entity now, one flesh. Beautiful and profound. Spiritual and mystical in some ways, but beautiful nonetheless. And look at verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Husbands, again, love. That to love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. If you read this, it kind of makes sense that he's been talking to husbands about love, and then he ends with this little thing about wives respecting, so it must be committed and must be linked to the idea of submission that he was telling the wives. So it should result in respect, and it should result in husbands' love. Okay? The two becoming the one flesh, representing a beautiful unity that they are advocating for, that the two become one. Paul continues this actual illustration and he takes it a step further. And it goes to show you this idea of mutual submission. We're not going to look at this next week. We're going to jump ahead. But if you look at chapter 6, he's going to take this relationship then to children and parents. And he's going to take this relationship between slave master and slave. And he's going to show how Christ is to undergird all of those relationships in that way. And he's talking to them in this context of submission mutually to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's summarize this for you. So our one true statement was that out of reverence to Christ, there's to be mutual submission between husband and wife. Verse 21 really is the key indicator verse there. 
But there's this mutual submission between equals. Remember, it's a voluntary thing. It's not coerced. It's not forced. It's none of that. It's a voluntary thing amongst equals, both created in the image and likeness of God. Word to wives is to respect their husbands. Word to the husbands, love your wife. Love and Respect. By the way, really good book, by the way, if you ever want to read that, Love and Respect by Emerson Eckrich. Really good book. Highly recommend it. So respect your husbands and love your wife. But to both of us, I would say this. There's a mutual submission in a relationship that is guided by Christ's love, Christ-like love amongst equals. Let me say that again. There's mutual submission in a relationship that is guided by Christ-like love amongst equals. Paul is advocating for something that's very foreign, very different to those people were, that he was communicating to in his day. And I think in many ways, even our day today. So let's uh, put this into practice. Let me give you three things to walk away with here. Number one is, I, I want you to consider how to evaluate this together. Husbands and wives, I would encourage you to take this message home and some of the things that you have heard and use it as a springboard to have some honest conversations. Some of the things that we addressed in this passage. Husbands, how are you loving your, sp your spouse well as an equal? Ask your spouse, in what area am I not loving you well right now? If you consider her to be an equal of equal value, listen to her voice. Do not drown her out. Do not think that she has nothing to say and to contribute. So, how can you love your spouse well as an equal? Wives, how are you respecting your husbands as an equal? Maybe you asked that to your husband today, you know, maybe you recognized that this week that you said something that was disrespectful and it wasn't in good faith that you did that. Use this as an opportunity, have honest conversation and repent if you need to to one another. Pray for, ask for forgiveness for one another if you need to. Secondly, invest in your marriage. Couples, make marriage a priority. Marriage takes work. Takes work, right? It's not something that you just, all of a sudden when you walk down the aisle, you put it on the shelf and then that was it. No, marriage takes work. The more time you invest into your marriage, the more it is going to appreciate over time. So there are many different ways you could do this. Maybe read a marriage book together. Read Love and Respect or whatever. You could read a marriage book together. Attend a marriage conference. Make date night a priority. Many different things. You know, this is one of the things that's always been passionate about me and Jen is like our, our passion and heart for, uh, for couples and for marriage. There's many different tools that we can give you and thoughts that we can give you, so we'd love to talk to you offline about it, okay? But make your marriage a priority. Pray together. If that's not a regular thing that you guys do, pray together. Now, I promised you all, if you're not married, here's something for you. If you're not married, then your head, your source, your origin is Christ. How are you connected to the head? How are you walking in a, in a relationship that signifies unity between you and Christ? Are you submitted to him? Are you unified to him today? In our attitudes and actions, are we finding ourselves committed and walking in that relationship with him? That's what we're supposed to do. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wife. Let's do it well in a way that reflects something beautiful, this beautiful mystery of Christ and how he loves his church, his bride. Let's pray. So Lord, we're grateful that we, uh, 
that we can know love because of the fact that we've been loved by you. But we realize that it's something that's a supernatural work. Thank you that you loved us so much that you gave yourself. And for those under the sound of my voice today who don't know you, who do not know Christ and don't know your love, I pray that today that they would know that you died for them, that you were buried and you rose, and that you want to walk in relationship with them. But Lord, I do pray that in all of our marriages here today that we would take the things that we have heard and take them to heart. To recognize that man and woman are created in the image and likeness of God. That there isn't an inferiority and a superiority. Even though that there is difference within difference, there's unity. And in that unity is a mutual submitting, not only to one another, but doing it as unto you, Lord. That you are glorified in the midst of it so that people see you in the loving relationship that we can have with one another. So, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen marriages today. I pray that you would bring healing where it's necessary. I pray that there would be courageous conversations where maybe there needs to be some forgiveness that's asked for and extended. I pray that grace and mercy would give way to those things, uh, and that, God, that you would just strengthen us in all of that. So, Lord, may we have healthy marriages that reflect you and reflect this mystical union between Christ and the church, that the world may see and may see the beautiful love that you have shed abroad in our hearts, that it would be reflected in our relationships. Help us even within the context of the church to do that with one another and to walk in love and to walk in grace and peace. It's in the most precious and holy name of Jesus, our Savior, our head, that we could pray and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Before we close in our benediction, at this point of the service, we're going to go ahead and collect our offering. So we're going to actually make a little bit of a, a change in that. And we're making some tweaks to the order of service a little bit, guys. As we, um, as starting in a few weeks, we're going to have prayer. And prayer is going to be part of our service. Right where we're at right now, we will basically be doing prayer. When we implement prayer, we're going to be doing that at the end of the service. So we're making a few little adjustments to our uh, order of service. And thank you guys for being gracious. So ushers, um, they can go ahead and pass the buckets. If you, um, I want to thank you all for your gracious giving. That's a way that we worship. So we're worshiping through our giving as well. And you could do that either online. Um, the information is behind me. If you want to do it via text or you want to do it online as well, that's a way that we can worship through giving. And uh, Keegan is going to give us a few announcements real quick. And then we'll close with the benediction. All right. Thank you, Adrian. Um, I would have been here in the beginning of the service, but my hair just wasn't sitting right. So I had to take... <laughs> I had to take the hour to address that issue. Uh, but real quick, uh, we've got some exciting things going on today. Is the cook-off at 3 p.m. over in the youth building. Uh, if you are bringing chili, please have it here by 2.15. And if you are bringing other side dishes, please have them here by 2.30. Once again, that's going to be in the youth building. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's the only other building on the side there, pointing to it. Uh, it's going to be a good time. Once again, that starts at 3 uh, and then you might have noticed we have printed up a little calendar of events for the remainder of the year. Um, so if you look at it, we've got a whole lot going on. We've got uh, mission trip meetings. We've got turkey trots. We've got a uh, Thanksgiving meal on November 12th. We've got trunk or treat. So there's a lot going on at Firewheel. So please pick up a copy of one of these. They're out in the lobby before you leave. Um, and last but certainly not least, uh, don't forget about the golf tournament, December 10th. Uh, the sign-up is online, so even if you have never touched a club before, you are welcome, and you are loved. Uh, but no, that's going to be a great time. 
Um, other than that, thank you all so much, and that's all I have for you. Mm. All right, guys, if we get y'all to stand, we'll go ahead and pray our benediction over you and get you dismissed. Uh, and make sure, guys, by the way, as it relates to announcements and stuff, if you're not following us on Facebook, uh, Aaron is doing a really good job of creating Facebook events for all these different events going on. Uh, yes, yes, we need to give her a hand, so she's doing a great job with that. And then always our website is where you can always find links to all the sign-up sheets and everything, so please follow us on there if you are not doing so. Now, may the Lord go before you to light the path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. And may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant you the character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. Love you all so much. You are dismissed. Thank <laughs> you.